Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Ready Room. I'm your host, Richard Frederick, and today I'm joined by your co-host, the other half of The Ready Room, Keith Phillip. You know him better by his call sign, Chunks. Uh, It's been a while since our last episode, uh, back in late December, uh, back in 2019. What a very special time for me. Uh, (laughs) At that time, I was hopeful that we would be uh, increasing our show output to two episodes a month, and I had a couple of great guests lined up to start the year, but, well, 2020 has turned out to be a weird one, huh? (laughs) Um, Due to some issues at home, and then followed by the onset and the escalation of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were forced to reschedule and then postpone indefinitely some of those interviews. Um, If you're a regular listener to the show, uh, you know that we are affiliated with a Shared Universe podcast network, and we record out of their studios. Uh, The network owners have suspended in-studio recording for the time being, and so I decided to shift to setting up an in-home studio. Between getting that up and running and just taking some time to reset with my bride and my children, we ended up on this uh, mini hiatus as it were. Uh, But we're back. And in this episode, I talk with Chunks about COVID-19 and get his perspective on the crisis. Uh, Chunks is a lieutenant in a large metro area fire department. Uh, And as a firefighter, he is on uh, the front lines uh, as a first responder in this pandemic. And while most of us have been stuck at home, his schedule has not changed. In fact, he's gotten busier. We talk about the psyche required to go out every day and be in close contact with the public, knowing that the risk of exposure is so much higher. Uh, He's very candid about what he's seeing and how that compares to the characterizations uh, depicted in uh, most legacy media outlets. Uh, We discuss the response to the pandemic and what it means for us as a society. Uh, And finally, we discuss uh, a great deal of uh, future possibilities um, uh, that we may see coming for a post-pandemic world. Uh, Just as a note to you listeners, for the first 20 minutes or so of this discussion, you may hear a clarinet in the background. Uh, um, Like most of us, Chunks' kids are are homeschooling right now, and his practice uh, happened to coincide with our interview time. Like I said, it only lasts for about 20 minutes or so. Uh, we took a break at that time to let him finish up, and then we uh, continued our conversation um, from there. And the conversation was really a good one. Uh, we talked for just shy of two hours, and we cover a lot of ground. Really a great, great talk uh, that helped me put much of my own thoughts on this crisis into a clear perspective. Uh, I really think you'll enjoy it. And so without further ado, I give you Keith Phillip. Okay, Chunks, we're live, man. Okay. What's happening? Same same old, same old, brother. It's, it's been a while, obviously. So, <laughs> um, it has been. When was the last show? Well, the last, uh, the last interview uh, was, uh, was back in December, yeah, right before the new year. And uh, I remember at that time thinking, okay, cool, we're going to do two a month uh, for the next year. Um, and then... And a lot of things happened, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're we're here, and obviously it's been a while. And I was hoping to talk about other things, but I think that, like we said yesterday, the uh, uh, 
the COVID-19 uh, pandemic continues. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that. I did a lot of thinking after we talked yesterday, uh, Chunks. And, I, I, you know, I, it's one of those topics that I think um, very few people know enough about uh, to, yeah. to talk in a way that is, you know, certainly with authority, but in a way that's even got a, a fraction of the knowledge that you need. And so I, I was thinking about that. I was like, I, I really want to be careful to, to, to you know, as we talk, I, I just want to say right off the bat, like, hey, I don't, I definitely am not an expert in this. I have tried to keep up, um, you know, I think more than most, but probably not enough. And really, I've been, I think like a lot of people focusing on my family and uh and my children and and we've been outside every day and and we're just we're, we're you know we're we're getting we're, we're we're having a lot of close time which is really really nice uh, on the other hand uh, you know it, it would be nice to also be close to uh to other friends and family which is obviously not um a thing right now so well as a sidebar Bart man I, I you know I have my life is relatively unaltered I mean, I'm going to work and I'm coming home and my schedule is the same as it basically has always been, which I guess uh, maybe is some kind of sad commentary about my daily mechanics that they haven't really been altered that much. But the things I've seen are my entire community is out and about and everyone is friendly. And I see these uh, serial news stories about people driving by the guy that's having the 95th birthday or. Um, something I witnessed the other day that really touched me was a young father with a young child, young son, and they were just standing there on this little bridge we have in town that goes over a couple really big, uh, busy railroad tracks, and he was just talking to his boy about trains, you know, and it was like probably, well, let's see, I was coming home from work, so it was before four o'clock, but I thought <clears throat> that would never have happened had things not been the way that they are. I mean, I'm making the broad generalization, but that time of the day in the middle of a work day certainly never, never would have happened for that guy. And I just thought, you know, there's a lot of good interpersonal stuff coming out of this. Um, in regards to your concern about accuracy on this part, you know, and on the show and the things that we say, I, I, I thought a lot about that too, Bart, man, because there's so much data and the reality is, a lot of it, in my opinion, is white noise to a certain deg degree because we are living off of projections of doom. Not, we're not experiencing empirical doom. The numbers today, as of April 7th, are not even a bad flu season. So there's something going on that we're, you know, obviously we're going to delve into. <clears throat> but um, the beauty of the ready room is we, we don't have to be experts in it, man. We're going to present our informed, opinion personal opinion and and in that regard I, I don't feel the need to have a mastery of all the data because for one on my in my job experience i'm on the proverbial front lines you know which is an overblown term but there are certain empirical realities i'm dealing with every time i step out the door to go to work um but on the flip side man i don't spend every minute of my day scouring the cdc web pages for the for the newest updates or the World Health Organization, which th those 
organizations have their own agenda behind the things that they post and the things that they say. So, you know, I don't really feel like we're on any bad type of footing or in, in at risk of spreading uh, falsities over an opinion. So if you're watching this or listening to this and you take it as anything more than opinion, uh, you're probably making a mistake and you probably need to read something anyway. Yeah, just well put, Chunks. Uh, I'm, I'm nodding my head, of course, the entire time because it, that's exactly it. I, I only have I, I'm an opinion and that opinion is based on a limited amount of knowledge that I've been trying to accumulate, but I have not tried to accumulate such knowledge that I feel like I am an expert in this Frankly, because it, it's, it, like you said, it's so much white noise. I mean, if ever there was, if ever a time that the phrase uh, uh, numbers lie and liars use number was appropriate, holy moly, is it now, yeah, right? Right. So exactly. I, I, you're right. I, I look at those, um, I, I look at the, uh, uh, the numbers. Uh, I don't know where you're going. I, I'm, I've been using uh, World, World Meter, uh, dot info, which is a pretty good uh, site. They seem to update it regularly. So. Um, yeah, and you're right. The numbers, like we said yesterday, Chunks, um, the numbers are interesting. Uh, right now, um, just looking at it right now, it's uh, total cases worldwide, 1,379,040. Uh, deaths, 78,114. Just real quick math, probably puts that at around 5% fatality rate. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not very good at math on the, on the fly, but I think that's probably somewhere about right. Five um, percent seems very high. It is very high, right? On the other hand, there, there's. It's very apparent when you when you look at those two numbers that the number of deaths that's that's certain, right? That's that's a number that that they're saying. Hey, these many this many people have died uh, from COVID nineteen or, or or its complications and or its complications, right? The number of cases. Well, we know that that's got to be low, <laughs> right? Because the number of people that have this and and have had this and don't know it is probably staggeringly high. Right. Anecdotally, I know three or four people that suspect that they had it. And, you know, just based off of the timing of it and their symptoms, you could make a strong case. And And when you, and when you look at how they're tallying the deaths related to COVID-19. You, you realize you don't, they're not, they don't need any hard and fast data to say that someone died from COVID-19. If they can subjectively link their symptoms or uh, their death in any way to that, then they're presumptively assuming, you know, their presumption, their presumption is that they died of COVID-19. Yeah. So that, that number might be skewed. But my point is really that I, the people that I know, three or four of them that, strongly suspect that they had it, it, it to me seems pretty reasonable given their symptoms and that and the timing of it but you're right there without the testing data and being able to corral all these folks that were ill and then got well you're never going to know yeah so the the testing seems to be the real long pole here uh, i was just telling uh, my wife last night it's like man i uh, we there was a sickness that went around our house uh, sometime back in uh, February. And, uh, you know, I, I just looking back at it and, and talking to someone who had uh, that I know uh, who, who actually currently lives up in, uh, in Brooklyn, um, it, you know, she was telling me her symptoms and she uh, was uh, positive for it. And she was like, man, Bart, that, that sounds a lot like what I had. 
So maybe, maybe we've actually had it. I don't know. But boy, wouldn't it be, it would be great if testing was, was widely available. It's just not, obviously, uh, for, uh, you know, for the reasons that we weren't ready to, you know, they had to develop that. And, and that's a whole nother smozzle. I, I kind of started to look in on, on how they had developed the test and how the different countries and, and uh, oh my gosh, it, uh, it is amazing how this is, how this whole, well, like everything, it's just politicized. So, so I, I stopped even looking into it. Just yeah, right. Suffice to say that obviously the uh, there, there's not enough tests uh, to be able to be able to test everybody, and and there aren't enough, uh, you know, the healthcare facilities aren't able to do that anyway. If everybody wanted to come out, but you know what? Let's let's switch chunks. I'm gonna let's switch to what you'd said earlier. So, um, you know, you're one of those people who you just said, your life has not changed much. Your day-to-day routine has not changed because, um, well, I'll just, I'll just say for, I think most of our listeners probably already know, but if, you, if, you're, if you're new, then, um, then Chunks is a, uh, a lieutenant in the Allentown, Pennsylvania Fire Department. Uh, he is a first responder, obviously, and he is on the front lines of this. Uh, you have been, you mentioned last night when we talked uh, briefly that, uh, you have uh, briefings on the uh, uh, the burgeoning pandemic and uh, its effects every five days or so um, within the department um, and with civic leaders. So t- tell tell us about that, Chunks. It's uh, you know what what is your perspective from being a, a firefighter on the front lines and leading men and women uh, that are out there amongst the public and and at risk? What have you seen and and how is it how does it look from that perspective? Well, as by way of background, you have to understand the mind of a firefighter. I mean, the profession itself draws everybody from, um, you know, laborers, day laborers, um, to lawyers, because I don't, I don't know that there's anyone that, you know, up until the age eight, that wasn't the, their primary plan for their occupation in the future was to ride the big red trucks. And incidentally, it, it is really neat to see, Children of of young age, you know, when we drive by, just mesmerized by the machine. It, it's just such an interesting thing. And and for the guys that do the job every day, I don't think that's ever really gone away. Honestly, I have that same feeling every time I walk in the firehouse to start my shifts. But uh, so these guys are um, of of many and varied experiences in the world, and some of them, uh, most of them, have worked difficult. Uh, physical jobs before they came to this job and overall there's this uh sense of pragmatism about life and life's challenges i mean we i you know without getting dramatic we wade into people's tragedies day after day after day and so you have to have a certain um galvanized core to be able to do that and not and not come apart at the edges which frankly a lot of people do in the business i mean the alcoholism rates and the suicide rates are very high, but for the most part, guys uh, bear up to things extremely well and don't tend to get flustered easily. So with all that said, for, for background, it's interesting to me that on the personal level, at, at the company level, which is one vehicle and a crew of guys, um, there's a concern. You know, there's a concern. We acknowledge that the older guys in our department are going out the door and they are in the highest risk category, you know, as it's been briefed by the CDC just due to their age. 
we have guys that fit into that category and they're not, they have not shied away one bit, you know, even in, even in the attempt that I've made to shelter them from that and the, and the things that we've done departmentally to um, minimize the risk of risk of exposure, they are still getting off the truck and coming to the door. And if somebody needs a hand, they're putting that hand out. And I'll tell you, Bartman, it's a beautiful thing. I, I just, like every day in the Marine Corps where you ponder the blessings that come from a job where you get to walk among the finest men and women on the planet in character. Uh, this job is really no different in that way. You know, when push comes to shove. So on that level, as a guy who's, you know, responsible to take care of me and the two guys that I ride with, we have handled those challenges by reading um, and staying informed. And, and I'm blessed that I'm a, I've only got one guy permanently assigned to my company right now. I'm still waiting on a driver. So I get what we call a reserve guy. These guys kind of float around and fill in. So I my full-time guy has been there an exceedingly long time in this department, very experienced firefighter. And then I have a driver that floats in and they, they change every, you know, four days on, four days off, four days on. So for two shifts, I have a driver. Every one of those guys comes in the door having been more intelligent about the problem than, than when we left four days before, because as things evolve, they, they stay aware of it. So at the company level, uh, I rely heavily on the diligence of my crews. And so what, as in most cases, when you're a fire officer, you really just need to, at decision points, weigh in with decisions and provide general rudder steers or ideas on uh, on how the company's going to operate. So we've got every guy that comes to my engine knows what they're going to do the minute they step off the truck. And um, and frankly, I'm I'm the one who goes in first. I don't want them to go in first. I'm going to absorb that risk. That's my job, in my opinion. So we know how to do it there. And so regardless of any policy missteps or adjustments that need to be made for changing data, we have learned at the company level. How to mo how to hey chunks yeah is there like a clarinet going in the back? There's a clarinet yeah We're, this <laughs> okay. is like dual online learning man you're yeah we, you're at the hub of activity right here I, I can tell I, we'll and what you're up. not hearing is is my daughter doing her online stuff so we you know we are living fully in an online world at this point yeah including music um no I'm I'm hearing you and actually my my daughter's downstairs doing her uh, social studies assignment right now so yeah. I was, I was wondering, I, I, I knew, I, cause I was here and I was like, man, I, that, that's gotta yeah. be on your end, but yeah, okay, well, you know. I, was, I was hoping it wouldn't propagate that well, but yeah, no, I guess the acoustics of this old house are pretty, pretty loud and clear actually. <laughs> I, um, oh, that's great. Well, maybe we should have deconflicted times a little better, but I didn't think. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we're, 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 we're playing off the cuff anyway. So yeah, right. As usual. So anyway, at the company level, we're fine. The next interesting level up is, the fire administration. And I have to say, and then beyond them is the city, the city administrators. I'll tell you, Bartman, that they are honestly, they're really doing a great job. They're doing a great job because um, there's no playbook on how to handle this. I mean, when you consider that the last pandemic that really um, had this type of effect in the psyche of the, of the everyday average American citizen, force the everyday American citizen to react to it was probably the Spanish influenza a hundred years ago. The H1N1 10 years ago generated numbers that were 
off the charts higher than what we have today. Now, in three weeks, will that be the same? I don't know. All I know is it, it was higher and it killed more people and we, we didn't react this way to that. And I, I think that juxtaposition is very interesting and probably worthy of another show. But in other words, the city doesn't have a playbook. The chiefs didn't have a playbook. HR didn't have a playbook. And they have been, um, you know, at times, honestly, a little slow, but I don't, I don't discredit them over that. Um, but w there's been um, a partnership that's evolved between the union and the administrators in the city that have basically banded together and put, we had very few differences to begin with, but they're off to the side. And we're just down to, down to business to solve this problem on the behalf of um, of the guys in the union, the guys that are facing, you know, facing the virus every day and, uh, and trying to get things right. So they've done very well at that level. And, and there have been some interesting policy changes that have accommodated people who might have sick loved ones at home. Um, how to handle the quarantine has been a topic of conversation. And interestingly enough, a local college made their facility available for first responders who might have to go to quarantine so they don't have to quarantine at home. They provide food and a place to sleep and uh, connectivity for you all at no charge. So you can go there for 14 days and live out your quarantine and not put your family at risk. I mean, this is just a level of thing that's happening across the board is uh, people rising to the occasion and it's, and it's been great. Policy wise, I think they're as accurate and as good as it can be. Um, they, they've put policies in place to take care of the city employees. Now we're contracted employees, so that creates a gray area when they write a policy that might differ from our contract language, but we've worked through all those issues and continue to work through all those issues every day. Um, so Company level guys are doing the job. The chiefs have stepped up. The union leadership has been brilliant. Jeremy, uh, if you're listening, fantastic. Just a step ahead, taking the lead on everything. And the HR has been very responsive in the city to take care of their employees, which, you know, as you can imagine at the municipal level, I don't know that everybody would share that opinion all the time, but they really have been great. Um, Protective wise, policy wise, we, we take our temperature a couple times a day when we get there to work and then throughout the day just to manage our exposures. I could promise you that every firehouse in my city is cleaner than it has been maybe since the Spanish influenza because <laughs> we're disinfecting that thing not only in the morning and in the afternoon, but every time we go on a run, we come back and we clean the heck out of that truck. We're conscious of where we put our feet, we take our shoes off, we saw them, the soles of them. Uh, we have changes of clothes available. I mean, we're just doing everything we can to keep the virus at bay in the firehouse because once that virus intercedes in the day-to-day -day at the firehouse, you're going to have a problem. And the end game that we want to avoid is a fire department that is decimated in its ability to provide services because so many people are quarantined. That's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah, that, that was actually one of the things I was going to ask you about. I mean, so... Let, let's, uh, man, there's just a lot to unpack in that. Um, Can I say one more thing, Barman? Yeah. Let me do this. Because I, I want to tip my hat to our EMS brothers who are in a different union, but, but are walk, working hand in hand. And I have to say that they recognize, you know, we go on EMS runs and we often get there first. But we don't provide the level of service that they do because they're higher trained. And they're, the medics in Allentown are the people you want taking care of your sick children. They're, they're friggin' brilliant. They're brilliant. 
And they have absorbed the risk of this completely on their back. They hold us at quarters. They don't let us come in the homes. I mean, unless the patient is, you know, in dire need and then, and then nothing changes. We get there first, we get things rolling and then they come in behind and we work together as a team. But on the things where we can stand off, they know that they have to preserve the ability to put out large fires in Allentown. And, they're, and they've done that brilliantly. And, and those guys, and you know, I, this word hero that gets bandied about, I, I think it's a little, it's overkill. And I love post 9-11 world where people have that mentality, but you know, let's talk statistics. It's not, oftentimes we don't live up to it by the numbers. But I will tell you this, they are living up to it every single day because they're waiting knee deep into it and they're not even hesitating. And not only are they doing that, but they're going to great lengths to make sure that our service is protected as well. And I think that they're, I think they're fucking brilliant. Yeah. Well, so you, you mentioned a minute ago, um, I mean, and you're right, EMS, they're even, like you said, they're even more, I guess, exposed to this. Um, although I think all of the first responders are, I, as a matter of fact, I was talking to a buddy who, uh, he has a good friend, uh, who's a, a state trooper. And, and I, I think they had something like, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get it wrong, but, but it was a good portion of their, of the state troopers are, are home in quarantine right now. Yeah. Um, and they, because they, you know, either tested for it or were exposed to it at some, yeah. at some level and they don't know if they, and so they're in quarantine and he was saying that his buddy said that right now they are, they're out there, they're doing extra shifts, they're doing longer shifts and, but they're almost not even they're They've been given sort of this order to not, not engage unless there is life or, or, you know, life on the line or, or, uh, or an actual crime in progress. Otherwise they're like, Hey, don't, don't pull people over. Yeah. Don't, don't, uh, you know, uh, any of the normal kind of, uh, bureaucratic calls or administrative calls that they, they normally do. They're not doing, they're just like, yep, don't, don't interact with anybody unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, which is just odd to me. Um, and, and because they have such a, a, a portion of their force in quarantine that, you know, the ones that are not in quarantine are taking this incredible overtime on. And, and, and it got me to thinking, well, what if just for instance, take your, your position, like what if the, you know, uh, such a portion of your, uh, of your firefighters uh, were considered to be exposed that you wouldn't be able to, you know, put together a, an adequate firefighting force that um that hadn't been exposed what what do you do in that case so this is it's a two two parts to the answer because it's important that we define what does exposed mean and i don't know that all of our listeners are initiated to that level so i'll just so the social distancing rule is six feet and when you look at the cdc definition of what close contact means it's it basically is when you break the six foot barrier. And that's why I love what EMS is doing. And I sing their praises so much because nearly every patient they have contact with, they're going to break that six foot barrier before they even determine what's wrong. And then certainly when they transport them to the hospital, at least one of the medics is going to be well within that six foot boundary locked in a little, you know, 30 square foot box back of the ambulance. So, and then on top of that, there is a stratified matrix that we go by um, and it's the, the, to determine your level of exposure. So if you break the six foot barrier for a certain amount of time, then it falls on what PPE everyone is wearing. So if the, if the patient has a mask on, 
that reduces the responders risk a little bit if the if they've got a mask on if you're wearing a, a mask and a set of goggles and a gown you basically are it's it's not that it's not possible but um, the risk of exposure is is much much lower but the minute you don't have a mask or a set of goggles on and a mask on the patient now you start getting into a couple scenarios where you could find yourself in quarantine like that so there are definitive yardsticks that they use to determine exposure and I wonder you know um, if all the agencies are as aware of them as they should be I, I don't know I mean that's just a that's a posit. I really don't know whether they are, whether they're not. I can tell you that in Allentown, we're very aware of it and we take great measures to make sure that we cover um, as much as we can to minimize our chance of a high risk exposure. And then on top of it, if the patient needs to do like take medicine through an aerosolized, um, you know, medicine delivery system that, that, that creates a lot of hazard or if they're on, um, you know, um, CPAP or something like that. Um, so there's, in other words, if there's something that by nature will put the droplets into the air, the risk, of course, goes up from yeah. exposure. These are the sicker patients, and that's the ones where you basically say, hey, good luck, buddy, to the one guy that has to go in and, and manage that patient. Uh, so, yeah, it, there was a question at the beginning, Bart. I forgot, but um, the stratified level, the exposure, oh, and then dealing with what will happen when guys get sick or guys go to quarantine. Well, I can tell you that we have talked extensively about that um, with our city administrators, and it, it would take a lot in Allentown for us to get past our normal process of filling empty spots during a shift. Uh, I mean, honestly, like a third or greater of the entire shift, plus the shift that's going to get hired to cover them, would need to be sick to get to that point. Um, but we have a couple alternative scenarios in place that involves things like canceling vacations and um, doing away with some of the shift changing agreements that we have and, and basically mandating guys staying at work if need be. But I, I really believe that that's far down the line. But if we get into a, a position where like the state police are, are decimated that much, then yeah, everybody knows you're going to have to do that. You're going to go to work and you're going to stay there. And then for an extended period of time, and then you're going to go home and start all over again. Okay. So we were saying chunks, um, we were talking about, uh, the, um, the, and, and listeners, we just took a short break. Uh, that way chunks, son could uh, finish up his clarinet practice. Uh, sounds like he's doing real well, by the way, chunks. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think he is. <laughs> It's amazing. I, it, uh, it reminded me of that Ferris Bueller scene where, where he's playing the clarinet. He's like, never had one lesson. <laughs> <laughs> you got to show your son that, man. He probably doesn't even know who Ferris Bueller is. He doesn't. And I'll be honest with you, Bart, man. And this might be, this is embarrassing to admit maybe now, but because there's such a wider audience, but I've never seen that movie beginning to end. That's it's true. one of so many movies. We could, we could do a show on, have you seen this? And the, the answer would be no. I'm completely uninitiated, but I can tell you this though. My children have three requirements before they can leave under the security of my roof. They have to know how to shoot a weapon. They have to know how to play an instrument and they have to know how to punch someone in the face. <laughs> so, I love it. It's, uh, it's, full of, uh, it's full <clears throat> of deep, um, defensive tactics and the arts. 
exactly. You the, think uh, about that. It, there's it's it's well thought out. But there's actually opinion. something. Uh, there's something uh, samurai in that. It didn't it, didn't the samurai have to train for war? And but they also had to be uh, versed in poetry and uh, social uh, graces. Yeah, I don't know that. I, know that. I was an officer uh, only by act of Congress, or officer and a gentleman only by act of Congress. Um, so um, we, when we left, we were talking about uh, the possibility that first responders, uh, firefighters, EMS, um, uh, police could could face uh, such um, uh, such a drastic loss of uh, of force due to quarantine efforts that it would be ineffective. And you said that you've actually, um, with the municipality there in Allentown, at least, you, you guys have discussed that. And that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you, basically, if it came to a certain point where there was not going to be uh, enough people um, that hadn't been exposed, uh, possibly, that really, if you weren't showing symptoms, you just come to work, even if you do possibly have that virus. Is that correct? So the extent of the conversation that we've had locally with no actual determination on how it would happen is that everybody recognizes some kind of sacrifice, whether it would be planned vacation days or uh, the inability to make exchanges. And, and you remember the phrase from the Marine Corps day on stay on where you would just go to work and plan to be there for an extended period of time, well beyond your uh, scheduled work shift. And then, there's a 48 hour limitation. So when you hit your 48th hour of work at the firehouse, you have to go home. That would probably be put to the side. And again, these are all theoretical at this point because we haven't crossed that threshold, but it's just some contingency planning has begun as far as concept. Now I will say this, there are larger municipalities in the United States that have point blank said, we're not honoring the quarantine. Unless you're symptomatic, you're coming to work because they've had so many exposures that they can't afford to let people sit at home for 14 days and not actually be sick. <clears throat> and so one of the things we talked about, you and I, during the break was, you know, what would that perspective be? Well, when you consider um, that this virus, as they, as they surmise, is um, uh, infectious during the, during the incubation stage, which means you, communicable during the uh, incubation stage, which means you can get sick before you know you even have symptoms. <clears throat> um, you stand to risk uh, putting a lot of people out of work. So you're going to have to take some precautions. But what's really interesting as this thing has evolved, the workplace um, recommendations they've made include social distancing or even wearing masks at the firehouse while you're on shift. So they're conscious of the fact that the end, you know, the end state we're all hoping for is to keep the firehouse isolated from the virus. So that guys coming and going that are well are not going to pick it up while they're at work and compounding the problem that we've, that we started talking about, which is not having enough guys to go out the door and do the job that has to be done. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I imagine the uh, uninitiated audience probably thinking, wow. So you're telling me in larger um, municipalities, I could possibly need a first responder to come and uh, assist me. And that first responder that may very well have uh, that virus be exposed to that virus, but is asymptomatic and therefore we're, you know, we need that person on the line. So that's, that's a huge thought right there. Um, and it guess it leads to the next uh, thing that the next 
I think thread naturally that we were talking about yesterday in our phone conversation, which is what, what do we really think? So we, we talked right at the beginning of this, that at, at this time it appears that, um, you know, the, the, the virus has a 5% uh, fatality rate based on the numbers. We both think, um, and I talk, I've talked to others that that is uh, high because we don't, the, the number of cases just is probably far larger than we are aware of. Uh, but that being said, the, uh, this pandemic has certainly, at least from, from my perspective, has brought out different sort of mindsets. Uh, and it, and it, it frankly crosses, uh, uh, you know, political ideologies. There are some people that just naturally, um, are, are much more cautious. I don't want to say frightened, although I've seen that online as well for frightened people. Uh, but there are people that are more cautious and there are people that are more sort of, uh, you know, along the lines of, Hey, I, I, I think that this is going to be uh, not as bad as they say it is going to be. Um, I don't want to get too much into that because again, we, we talked about, you know, our, uh, our lack of of enough knowledge to know whether one or the other is is the case, but I would definitely say that right now um, i I do and this again, like we said at the beginning, this is just opinion I do think it's it's fair to question our overall societal response right now to this pandemic um that being said, I, I'm in the minority, and I, I don't know that the the uh, that our response and the economic impacts are necessarily uh, um, outweighed by the by the cautious approach. What what are your thoughts on this? Well, to me, Bartman, um, I don't know what the driver is, and so when I look at what are, in my opinion. Uh, clearly violations of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Um, I don't know why it's happening. Like the numbers to me just don't bring us to that. In, uh, in other words, throughout history, there have been times where rights have been compromised and in the name of a greater good that was legitimate. Um, I don't see that. I don't see that here. And I don't know what they know uh, that brings them to that conclusion because it's not, in my opinion, communicated very well because an effort to quote flatten the curve uh, is not enough, in my opinion, to do the things that they're doing. And it's very interesting because a, a good buddy of mine from the Marines sent me a, an article this morning that I was just reading through on the Daily Wire about uh, how we are, we've become a police state where they're issuing citations for people out going for a drive. And it's like, wait a minute, man, how is that? That's not putting anyone at risk. I mean, the whole idea is ludicrous. In fact, you create the risk of, of infection by causing that interaction where you have to generate the citation. Whereas if you just let that person be out and about in their vehicle, uh, and I don't see where that where that power is derived from. Yeah. So, in other words, there's a broad overreach that's occurring right now. And as is often the case in this modern era, they throw up the idea of someone dying as the mitigating reason why they have to trample your rights. Don't you, do you want to save lives? 
well, yes, of course, I don't want anyone to die. And every one of those 78,000 people in the world of the 1.3 million cases um, that have died has an important backstory, right? But they were going to die at some point. And, and, and the law is irrespective of, um, I'm trying to say this the right way. People are going to die regardless. And so it's better to have a framework where rights are protected. Yeah, so Chunks, this is a, this this issue that you just brought up is is huge. Um, I, I think it's important. To, I like what you just said. It's it's important to at least question whether our response and and various states and uh, and local governments have enacted you know different uh, levels of how much they're um, they're going to enforce these the social distancing and quarantine rules. Um, you know, California, I think is uh, issuing fines and possibly jail time. I, I'd have to, I, I may be wrong on that uh, for gathering uh, like on public beaches Oh yeah, um, exactly. and uh, public parks. I, um, you know, other, other States have not um, have had uh, lesser um, degrees of the, of the quarantine um, regulations. <sighs> You know, uh, uh, again, not withstanding the source, like, you know, I, I'm sure some listeners right now are like, oh, the Daily Wire, there you go, guys. You guys are just, uh, you know, on the right. I, I personally don't go to the Daily Wire uh, ever. Um, uh, but but even in other measured uh, sources, uh, editorial pages, such as the Wall Street Journal, there have been um, uh, opinions you know, by thoughtful and earnest people saying, hey, uh, is this worth it? What do we know? And I think the problem with it, with the response is that maybe we just don't know um, enough about what this virus can do, what, how deadly it is. Uh, and that, that's a possibility, right? I've, I've considered that. I'm like, hey, maybe I should be more scared of this virus. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, and because the numbers are so fluid, it's hard to, to continue to to know. I do know that it is scary. Um, and when we're considering, um, you know, deaths of, of, of possibly uh, millions of people that we do have to, like you said, we, we can't just be callous about that. On the other hand, it is not out of line to question when someone says, I mean, I, this is some, here's a quote that I literally saw from a, a, a thoughtful and otherwise intelligent person on, on Facebook that I've known for years. And it, and it was, the true and the quote was something like this: that the truism is is that we need government enforced altruism. And um, I, 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 man, I I just bristled, you know, when I read it because I was like, that that does not sound thoughtful or measured at all. It sounds like uh, you know a fearful um, uh, overreaction to something. Um, you know, the bottom line is, hey, we government save us here. We don't civil liberties be damned save us from this. Um, and I, I think that there is a legitimate question to be asked there. Yeah. So I, I definitely think the same thing I have, I've said, well, maybe there would be, maybe there could be a, uh, a, a more considered quarantine measures. Uh, I don't know. I, again, I'm not the, probably the smartest guy to, to be able to come up with this, but, uh, maybe more, um, you know, find those that are more at risk. Um, 
selective quarantining with a broader ability for uh, people to go out, go out in, uh, into public so that we don't have, you know, six and a half million jobless claims over the last week. I think, I think that's the number I saw. Uh, pretty, well, well, that's pretty, the whole point, Bart, man, is, is where, what is the end game? Yeah. I mean, when you consider, and, and listen, if our, if the listeners want to cast us into a pigeonhole because we quote something like the daily wire, then okay, fine. You're entitled to your opinion. But this, this, little snippet that I'm going to read from Matt Walsh's article could come from anywhere. And it's the truth. For example, Minnesota is under a stay at home order, despite having only 29 Corona deaths among a population of 5 million. So 29 and then by perspective. So currently 377,792 cases in the United States with 11,816 deaths. The weekly influenza tally in the United States 39 million flu illnesses this year with 400,000 hospital uh, visits, stays, and 24,000 deaths all from the flu. So I wish that they would, every time they read a coronavirus statistic, automatically then follow with an influenza statistic. Because like I said, I, I don't know what the end game is. And I, but what I can, what, in my estimation, certainly, all of this what I would consider to be overreach is bad risk management. And you're creating extremely bad outcomes for the economy, for people's individual lives on something that empirically so far has a long way to go to meet that threshold. If I was the one making the decisions. And then when I look at the politicalization of it and the rhetoric that has been coming out of the, well, frankly, on both sides, but uh, the aspersions that have been cast and the backpedaling and the changes of opinion where you have Nancy Pelosi calling President Trump a racist for uh, shutting down travel from China and then going herself and, you know, transiting her way through the Chinese market in San Francisco and then turning around a month later and talking about let's do an investigation about what he knew and when did he know it. It's all seems contrived to me. And I, like I said, there's a, there's a, there's a part of the logic circle that's missing in my mind as to why we're going through all this. And I don't know, and I don't know how to fill it in. Yeah, I don't either. That, that I think you've hit on it for me, which is, you know, I don't, I'm having trouble making, um, making sense of, like you said, I guess the, the, the end game, or I, I, I don't know if that's a great term, uh, but the, the thought process behind it all. Again, maybe they know something we don't know. Certainly uh, both sides, Pelosi, uh, President Trump, I, um, you know, if the Speaker in the House and the President of the United States uh, on different sides of the aisle, both, you know, uh, early on downplayed, you know, the risk of this, then I, I'm, I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback either of them, um, frankly. And there's a lot of that going along around, you know, the Monday morning quarterbacking. And if you're of a, a real strong political bent, you're, you're only going to Monday morning quarterback the other side. Yeah, right. Uh, and that, that's unfortunately true of, uh, of our rhetoric in general. Uh, but but I do think that uh, one thing you said was um, improper risk management. That is what that is a good term, chunks, because that is sort of what I feel might be happening here, an overreaction based on uh, you know what is the most cautious state. And I guess it comes down to a different uh, worldview or mindset. I know my I we've talked about chunks. You've laughed at. You know, we've laughed about it with me and, and how just in the minority I seem to be in my weird thought process and how I straddle the aisles on different issues. But 
Uh, I do right now this, you know, lives must be saved at all costs from COVID-19 at all costs. We need the government to take over uh, wartime powers, the, the, the whole like that does seem like an overreach. It does seem like an overreaction, at least right now. I am willing to change my mind. And oh, by the way, I should, I should mention right now, I am also complying with all of the uh, recommended quarantine measures, uh, which is that we are at home. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't make frivolous trips. We have not got gathered in uh, groups of uh, you know, 10 or more. All of those things we're doing. Now, I happen to be fortunate because I live on 500 acres that it's, it's not so bad. We uh, have been out in the woods and in the creeks and uh, doing all the, the great stuff that we, we can do on the farm here. Um, but uh, I, I, I think you are, are spot on in, in saying that this is a possible overreaction. Um, many, many people are losing their lives to just for one influenza, as you said, uh, we've, we've talked about that from the beginning and it, it's true. It is true. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, and, and then also people's lives are being, uh, altered, uh, for the worse, possibly, um, you know, for the foreseeable future and maybe permanently, uh, because they are losing their jobs, their livelihoods. Um, and that is a true thing right now. Um, and, and we don't know post-pandemic what the world is going to look like. I actually have a bunch of stuff that I, I jotted down earlier about my thoughts on that. Because, frankly, what I've been doing, Chunks, is, one, I, I have been considering thoughtfully. And, and you know, I don't, I don't comment on Facebook, uh, you know, when people say things that I'm not sure I agree with. I, I've just learned to leave that. I think we, most of the adults learned that in 2016. Uh, but I, some are still are there. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I, I realize I'm not going to change any minds, but it would be if I were to say something, I think on say social media, you know, either Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever, you know, to the extent of, Hey, uh, maybe, maybe we're responding to this in, in a way in which we're giving too much, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're accepting, um, risks that outweigh the benefits in terms of how we're shutting everything down. And I imagine there would be a lot of people, you know, screaming and yelling and pointing fingers at me. That's fine. Um, I know I'm not alone in this thought, but I think I'm in the minority. And because uh, most people have agreed to these, uh, these measures, and, and, and I do think that flattening the curve is an important thing, right? So if we, if we think that COVID uh, it transmits that, uh, you know, is, is as a um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It, it transmits easily. Right. You, and so if it's that, if it transmits that easily and we're going, it's going to be, the numbers are going to be somewhat like the flu. Well then guess what? If you have an influenza with all those deaths uh, and then everybody gets this Corona, this novel coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, then we, we possibly double that. Right. Which means that we are, that our medical facilities and, and our ability to treat becomes overwhelmed. I do, I do believe that that probably is um, something that is a, a, a likely outcome. So flattening the curve seems to be a good idea. On the other hand, um, many experts have said, uh, Osterholm and uh, Hotez, I, I, uh, uh, you know, that I've listened to have said, hey, the bottom line is we're going to flatten the curve and then we're, we're going to have to come out of this. And eventually everybody's going to get this virus, uh, or at least most of us, right? Uh, the bottom line is the virus isn't going to go away because we quarantine. You're, you, 
you're probably going to get it. You may have already had it uh, and didn't even know it. That, that's, that is a tr that's a truism from what I have been able to gather from experts. Well, that's when I say end game, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Bart, man. End game has a specific meaning. Um, where do we end up? What is the objective? And so if it truly is flattening the curve, how do you measure that? You're, you're never going to know. The testing is uh, inaccurate and um, frankly inadequate in numbers, and it's getting better. I mean, it's not an aspersion. It's just the reality of the situation. So, so they're taking all of these uh, broad measures for something that in the end will become an intangible victory, if it is a victory at all. Um, because you're not going to be able to measure it. You're never going to know the outcome without the intervention to compare it to. That's why I say, what is the end game? Um, everything is based on a projection. And I guess you have to, it's kind of like combat, I suppose. In that way, I agree with the analogy that the president says where we're fighting this war. Although I think that get, that concept is overblown, but in this, you know, in this train of logic I'm going through now, I, I can understand the point where you're taking the information you've got at the time and you're trying to make the best decisions. But as it's not playing out empirically to keep doubling down and begin to arrest people who are not posing any risk to anyone or issue citations or to break up gatherings. I read another thing where a, a group of teachers was going to, you know, they've had all these drive-by scenarios where they're waving at people, whether for birthday or the teachers were going out to uh, support their students in their online learning efforts and the police broke up the the convoy and it's like how do you come to the conclusion that there's any risk involved in this and where do you get the power to do that I, I don't know the answer to that um, I just know it doesn't seem reasonable it doesn't strike me as reasonable so what is the end game so what now could these be one-off scenarios where people are are uh, engaging in their own overreach yeah but it's certainly supported by uh, like you said earlier, community pressure. And so for the average person, you can't just live in the moment and um, accept the trampling of your liberty as okay because you have to think about what the end game is for you. What happens next time? When do we draw the line on the government being able to intervene to this extent? And how much are you willing to risk personally over something that clearly today, clearly today is not the threat that they said. And here's what's very interesting about what we said about hospitals and ventilators. So the whole premise throughout this thing has been we're concerned about our hospitals becoming overwhelmed. That's right. Look, in, in places that is playing out and it's scary. You see nurses on TV crying because they don't have the right masks. So every engagement they have with a patient is going to be a high risk exposure. Every one of them. And that's, that is a weight that I thank God every day I go to work. I don't have to bear because we are properly equipped at least today. But I know that there are plenty of places throughout the country where ventilation, ventilator capacity is to excess and hospital beds are to excess. And, and when excess is not the right word. They are available for use. They're not taxed. They're not uh, being overworked and they're not being overrun. And places where they built additional um, contingency style field hospitals that have, um, um, you know, a very minimum number of patients in yeah. it. 
am to, I to play the other side? But do you do you think even do you think that maybe that this quarantine, um, these quarantine initiatives have 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 made that the case? I mean, is that why they are available? Well, uh, I don't have the expertise to answer that question, Bartman, and I and I don't know how long it's going to take the people with the expertise to actually figure it out if they really do. Because again, how many patients, how many people? Um, have had this illness and came through it without ever being tested, without ever knowing. Yeah, that number will be immeasurable. That's why I can only, you know, I can only form this opinion off what's happening in front of us today. I, I don't know. Hope, hopefully, um, hopefully that is why. Hopefully that is why. Because I would like to think, for all of the madness that we're existing in, there's some tangible benefit to it. Uh, I know we're killing the economy and I know that people are enduring a lot of personal hardship. Yeah. And if it was worth something, okay, but you know, you're not going to sell me on reducing deaths by X amount of number is worth completely derailing our way of life. Not when we haven't solved the flu problem. Why are we not doing this for that? Yeah. These are fair questions, Chunk. So yeah, I mean, maybe the, maybe the quarantine effort is actually what's keeping um, some of these places uh, available and ready to treat patients. On the other hand, like we have said that the, the question is, is that worth the, the negative benefits to, um, to lives uh, economically, personally, that uh, we, that appears to be happening right now. Um, you know, here's one thing that I've been doing in all of this chunks, which is to one, I, I mentioned I'm not Monday morning quarterbacking any anybody on either side of the aisle because I I know in my heart that they probably were like any human being, like man, what what's going on here? Nah, I don't, I don't think we should. Let's not overreact. Let's you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's an outcry and they, 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 they switch, you know, and they shift yeah. and it, it grows and grows and grows to the point that they're like, okay, you know, man, we got to, let's, let's, uh, so, you know, we can talk all day about how we got there and, and missteps along the way. And, um, and whether, you know, we've already asked what, you know, is what we're doing correct? I, I don't know. So I don't think either of us, I think we both have probably the same opinion that there's probably a little bit of overreach, uh, and that we may very well regret what we're doing, um, you know, in the long run, I don't know. Um, but what I have been doing personally, uh, besides spending a lot of time with my uh, family, um, and, and we do have actually, uh, some, we do actually have quarantine buddies in this whole thing. I, I that's one thing I was going to ask, uh, it, at least me and Ari, we, we have some quarantine buddies, uh, that we actually get together with. Uh, we're not a group of 10 or a group of eight. <laughs> uh, and we have kind of quarantined together. Um, uh, I obviously am not going to mention names because I, uh, you know, I don't want them to be socially shamed and you can point a finger at me all day long, but it has been a sanity, um, keeper for me, uh, because, uh, without without them and I told him I was like man we love you guys uh without you guys this would not we would not be uh we would not be in a good place we it, it's good to be able to get together with at least someone outside of your home uh and we've kind of been in this together I wonder how many other people are doing that like you know hey okay there's there's some friends that we know that we're going to try and see each other and get together not just you know virtually that has been big for us, really big. And so, uh, but, but it, it, it harkens to what we kind of, one of the things we talked about last night that we haven't touched on now, which is beyond the economic impact, beyond the questions, whether we, 
uh, are doing, you know, whether the risk outweigh the benefits in terms of how we're responding to this. <sighs> we, I mean, human beings are not meant to be cooped up in a house with no social interaction. And you can only imagine that, uh, I mean, I've already, I've thought about this. When, when we are finally uh, relaxed enough to come outside, uh, you can, it's going to be a, an amazing thing. People will, at least for a, a little while, they're going to be smiling and hugging and, <laughs> and just, you know, going to the restaurants will probably be packed again. I, um, at least for a time, right. You're, you're going to see that sort of, man, it's, it's good to be out with humanity again, because we're not meant for this for sure. Uh, this has to be, and I don't know how much longer we can keep it up. So what I've been doing, and this is, I, I came about this, obviously I'm coming around my ass to get to my elbow on this point, Chunk, so <laughs> thanks for bearing That's with That's what we do here. Welcome yeah. Here. <laughs> um, I, I have been focused on, um, you know, future, uh, what the future looks like. Um, so there's several, uh, several influential thinkers that I read uh, very often who are trying to, uh, you know, look through, look into their crystal ball, uh, as it were to figure out what it's uh, what this post pandemic world is going to look like. I got to tell you, it's fascinating, uh, scary, and also encouraging because, you know, depending on the person um, that you're reading uh, that some prognostications are, are, are really grim for what what's coming. And some prognostications are, are very hopeful. Um, I wrote down a quote from, uh, uh, from, from Milton Friedman, who I, I, I love, um, you can disagree with me on that. I know. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, and he said this, and, and it's, I think it rang true for me. Um, Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. I love that. I love that phrase. The ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available until the, political Im the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Uh, great quote. Mm. Um, I, I, I think you and I would both agree, uh, most of us would probably agree that this constitutes uh, a crisis. Um, um, so regardless of what, where you're coming at it, from it at it and, and i like it. what he's saying is that these these crises uh, these crises uh, produce change um and that that term the ideas that are lying around and of course we have no shortage of uh of the of ideas that are that are out there in terms of how we should be uh organizing our society and so i i i think it's uh I think it's a good thing because anytime, anytime that there's a new change, you know, that's, that's, that's hoisted on us. Um, and, and this change comes rapidly as this, this pandemic is, is showing us um, that there's a, there's a bias. There's a tendency for us to, uh, to think that, um, you know, what's the, 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 the new present is, is going to be the future. Right. Um, and uh that is almost always not the case. So what does the future look like uh, after this pandemic? And, and when do we come out of it? I actually, uh, I wrote down a couple of thoughts too, or, or not thoughts, uh, uh, blurbs from people that are, are, that are talking about different economic paths, but we'll get to that later. But, you know, have you, have you considered any of like what you think this is going to mean for 
for us going forward when we come out of this? I have. Um, and I want to go back to one thing that you said, Bart, yeah. about the way that you are um, not Monday morning quarterbacking. And I don't want to leave the impression that I'm Monday morning quarterbacking when I talk about the conflict between political parties. Because yeah. really, I mean, what I appreciate as someone who has had to make decisions in a large group is that um, it's easy to sit back and cherry pick the decisions that get made. And I'm not doing that. When I'm the, the yardstick I use is earnestness. In other words, at the beginning, everybody was kind of like, hmm, how bad is this? Oh, just keep washing your hands and keep moving. And then as things began to evolve, and at least the projections became so dire, you're right, the shift happened. And then just trying to do their best to that degree. Is it overreach? Is it not overreach? Again, these are issues that we're not going to decide. It's been an interesting conversation. But I do absolutely question the earnestness on each side of the aisle as they go back and forth in the middle of this crisis. I, I, frankly, if I was in charge of anything and I had people bickering that way and coming at me that way, there's a question of loyalty that goes involved there. So wh where is your agenda? What is your agenda when you are calling for an investigation of the president in the middle of all this? When clearly every day he stands up and gives a briefing, he's relying on his experts, and he took measures at the beginning to at least minimize the impact. And so um, when other people were saying, Lots of words to the contrary. Uh, so the earnestness is what I measure all this by, not not the not holding people to one uh, position or another at the beginning before they were as informed as they ended up being later. <clears throat> as in regards to the future, here's the one thing I thought of, maybe the biggest thought, because uh, I have been engaged every day with uh, trying to solve the immediate problem, but. I look at my son's school and my daughter went to Catholic school. My son goes to Catholic school now and they're just, the enrollment is down. The resources are sparse and it's difficult. It's difficult for the diocese to put together a curriculum uh, that has enough students. And so I thought, man, can you imagine the reduction in overhead if you just did away with the physical location? I mean, there, we are, churning our way into how online learning learning could work but now there's empirical data being put together that could maybe save the catholic school's financial position was one thing i thought of i don't i don't think there are going to be gross deviations as we come out of the backside of this thing i think we're going to have a whole new generation of germaphobes you know, who are taking great lengths to uh, never have our, our mutual buddy stinky is already ahead <laughs> of the curve on that one yeah, he was, he's saying he was ahead of the game 10 years ago. <laughs> I told you, I yeah. told you. <laughs> you can't take that kid even into the woods. Every, every plant, every leaf is, is poison ivy to him. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I really don't see uh, gross grand deviations. Um, I think we're going to wrestle with the issue of uh, stratification of authority and where the powers come from to deal with the issues we've had. I think you're going to see lawsuits coming from this, um, representing individuals and businesses who are who have been stymied by what's happened. And I do think that there'll be some unimagined but possibly inevitable changes to some of the things that we do in our lives, like the Catholic school example, if they were to grab onto that. Um, I'm interested to see what it is. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I could, we could sit here and project all day. I, but that was one tangible one. I thought, man, this could really make a difference in, 
in the in what they can offer to their students if they didn't have a brick and mortar placed to, as a requirement. But here's what's interesting, though, and I've watched this technological evolution go on since the Marine Corps um, took took the administrative burden off of the shop of admin Marines and put it onto the individual. So we have all of these automated systems that industry and commercial ventures have through whatever research they've done, come to the conclusion that customers prefer it that way to be able to get on and do it yourself. Cause that's how it's sold to you. That, but now you can ma manage your own thing. But the reality is all it does is take and put the burden on you. You know, the travel claiming process in the Marine Corps reserve is a shambles. It was a shambles before. And now it's even more of a shambles that you, you upload all your documentation and, um, Everything is electronically verifiable as to when it happened and what time it happened. But of the list of 40 names that come up that might touch your travel claim, there's not one damn person on that list that's accountable to you. You're accountable to the whole institution by way of this electronic medium. And so um, that this, in my mind, is where the risk meets the person because now this, the school districts have all forced this online learning model onto you and have made you the de facto instructor supervisor at home. Well, if you're a single parent or a person who has a job that works out hours, or you just don't have the facilities in your home by way of internet or a good computer or a camera, that burden is squarely on your back. Like I told my daughter, we're blessed in this home that we have the ability for her to sit down and log onto the computer and do her work. I said, but I, there's a, her school is huge. I promise you there are students there that the parents don't have the interest or they don't have the wherewithal or they don't have the facilities to participate in that. And I don't know how, I can't imagine what their life looks like day to day right now. I mean, we've organized our home, we have a set schedule and they have objectives that they've got to meet that are set forth by the school. But I know there are kids that are not resourced that way and I wonder what they're doing. Chunks, man, all of that is, is the fact that you mentioned education. That was one of the first things I actually had jotted down because we're uh, basically all homeschooling right now. Yeah. Um, homeschooling is uh, for, for years and years has been considered a, uh, the, uh, the realm of dissidents. I think uh, there has definitely been, and I, again, this, I, this is where I guess I get a little political and I'm fine. We're all political in our own way, but there's been a resistance uh, to allowing even partial homeschooling. Uh, and it comes from, let's face it, a, uh, a contingent that includes uh, the teachers union and certain politicians that are beholden to them. Um, and we know for a fact that the, I mean, we, we, there's plenty of evidence out there from people who study education, uh, that, that the, our old model of teaching is not, um, up to the task of the 21st century. So we've got this, this, you know, this, uh, this resistance to homeschooling or school choice in general. And I think that it, Coming out of this, we will see a great more of of the demand for one homeschooling and school choice, because as much as there are people out there, like you mentioned, that have do not have the facilities or, or the wherewithal to be able to do this, there are probably others um, that are saying, "Wow, but you know, I I could do this and I can do it more effectively and yeah. better and 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 manage their time better so that they actually have more free time." 
um, and, and still get them uh, to activities that where they are socializing uh, just fine. And so I, I think that, you, you know, all of that, uh, that resistance obviously has been swept away by necessity with this. And it's going to be near impossible to put that genie back into the bottle. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, and I hope it's true. Honestly, anything that undermines the grip that these folks have on the way we educate our children, um, to me, is a great thing. Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the first things I, I, I had written down when I was uh, coming up with my notes. I'll tell you, you mentioned um, the word earnest, and I, that is definitely one of the things that I have been drawn to in terms of who I am listening to uh, in, in, this, in this whole uh, Yeah, that's why crisis. I said it. Yeah, it's... I'm using the Bart yardstick. Yeah, if if you're if you come across to me as someone who is is approaching this whole thing from a position of humility and best intentions, and um, and with a uh, an acceptance that you that you may make mistakes and uh, and and you will pivot when you when those mistakes are shown to you, that's that's what I like. And the people that are talking about the issue and and saying you know hey. That, that say, hey, I don't know everything, but I, I, I'm asking questions that, that I think are important to ask, um, you know, and I'm willing to listen to your uh, opinions on it as well. Those are the people I, I, I am drawn to. And frankly, you know, Chunks, we've said it before, most of them are on, a, are on a platform like this. Yeah, right. So I'm devouring podcasts of people that I respect, uh, talking to uh, other people that have something important to say. And that's kind of been my, my modus operandi in this whole thing. So, um, well, so the other thing, uh, one, of, one of the other things that I think a lot of people are, um, are questioning is coming out of this, does, what does this mean for a global economy? Uh, in terms of how we interact with each other. Um, certainly one thing that has been apparent, I think, about uh, uh, in this crisis is that our, uh, our global supply chain is, is broken uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with this kind of a crisis and, and probably other crises as well. Um, and a lot of the people that I respect that are, that are uh, pontificating about um, about what may happen down the line uh, are saying that we're going to see a, uh, a retreat of globalization, at least in terms of, um, of production, goods and services uh, and, and the like, so that you have a, uh, a supply chain uh, um, that is able to absorb these kind of hits, even from, uh, you know, friendly nation um, uh, you know, hiccups. And so that you will see a, a greater localization or at least diversification of supply chains across the globe, uh, which means more local initiatives. It also means that we will probably uh, end up having to, to pay more uh, for certain goods and services um, because of that. Um, and so a lot of the things I see are people saying, hey, you know, expect, you know, that on backside of this, that um, ubiquitous, cheaply produced goods uh, that we have come to sort of, uh, you know, 
expect here in the Western world are, are, are not going to be that, at least in certain, uh, in certain sectors. I think that's a real possibility, Bartman. And globalization to me has always been a bit of a mystery because the guys that push for it, you know, their end game to go back to that concept is, is profit. And that's, that's fine. I mean, markets have to expand. Ideas have to change if you want to keep generating capital, but it ignores this fundamental human characteristic, which is conflict. And I've always wondered like, what if we had a war with China? And you know, there are people that are saying that's eventually, uh, well, it's an inevitability at some point in the future, whether or not that comes to pass, I don't know, but we built this global economy on the precept that nobody is going to fight one another inside there and then automatically cut off this supply chain that you're talking about. If it were me, I would not uh, table or let wither the, the great productivity capability that exists in the United States, but we've let that wither uh, in a lot of areas. I mean, we've transitioned to a service economy. We produce very little. And we like to think that we could turn it back on. And, and, and you know what? The reality is we could, Barman, but it's not going to happen instantaneously. And I don't even know what resources would be required to get back to a level of productivity where we could be self-sufficient. But I could tell you that you, you can see the, the steel mills of Bethlehem clearly not ready to do a damn thing if they were needed. I mean, it would be a complete tear down and rebuild, and that's going to take time. And it might take materials that don't exist here anymore that we might only be able to, to, to source from uh, a now, you know, a, a known enemy at this point. So I hope that globalization retreats a little bit, at least in concept. And I hope somebody says, wait a minute, we need some things in our hip pocket in case this goes down again, or we're going to fight a war with somebody. You know, we, we've glommed onto this concept over the last 25 or 35 years where it's really been uh, growing. And this thing may have revealed some unintended consequences of it that we have to deal with. That's a natural part of the process. It doesn't make me overly excited. I'm not going to paint a gloom and doom picture about it, but I hope that we, I hope that we get smart. Like I did hear the other day that we're filling up our oil reserves. We're buying why oil is low and we're replenishing this, the reserves that we uh, used up, what, 10, 10 years ago when the prices were high. And so and at least in that way that they're making a smart decision. And I hope we do that across all uh, sectors of industry, because I think that we're at risk in a completely globalized economy. And I think that we're uh, not doing ourselves any service by only having a service oriented uh, economy here in the United States. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I heard someone, uh, uh, actually it was Eric Weinstein uh, talking and he was, he was mentioning that uh, the idea that that you were beholden to stock, you know, to shareholders, uh, not stakeholders, is is a problem. And so what we what we have is, you know, um, on one hand, you can have a person, and I'm paraphrasing him. You, you can have someone who you know waves the American flag and is and is uh, you know super patriotic or whatever flag you happen to be waving, you know, in, in a uh, you know the British flag, the Swedish flag, whatever. Uh, and they're saying, hey, yeah, you know, we, we, we need to keep a, uh, a strong um, uh, manufacturing uh, sector. Uh, 
uh, in Sweden or, or America or Great Britain. Anyway, but, but then they're also beholden to their shareholders, which means that as soon as they say that, they, they have to, they have to put on their other hat and go, hey, uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna move our manufacturing to China uh, because I am beholden to the shareholders uh, to make a profit on this. That is a problem. That is, that is a, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize that. I recognize that it's not, that capitalism is, is hackable in that way. China has certainly, I think, done very well in, in hacking our, our system. Uh, I don't, and I don't mean that, you know, in a, in a, you know, the matrix kind of way. They just have taken advantage of what we offer as a, a free society. And so that they're able to, uh, they're able to get the best of, um, you know, have it, have their cake and, and also uh, eat it or eat their cake and have it. I, I can't remember how that phrase goes, but um, because they, they get the benefits of, uh, of our system, which relies on that American middle finger, which frankly is where a lot of our, our, uh, our ingenuity comes from, you know, that, that, that spirit. And, uh, and, and they've been able to take advantage of that through, uh, uh, through manipulation, currency manipulation, um, uh, you know, buying, buying certain uh, interests in the Western world, not just here in America, but everywhere. And, and yet still keep a, uh, a robust uh, uh, authoritarian regime at home. And that, that I think is probably going to continue. Uh, so I, I've actually said to, uh, to a good friend of mine, uh, you know, I think uh, that we're probably seeing uh, the the backside slide of America, maybe even the Western world's, uh, you know, power monopoly. That post World War II world is was already going away, right? And I think we'll see that go away, you know, continue to wane um, in the coming decades. I don't, you know, I don't like to say that, uh, but you know, there's also. A, uh, there's opportunity in that, right? I mean, we could, you know, a new understanding of patriotism um, as maybe, you know, so one guy that I, I know, I don't think, I don't think you're a fan of him as much. Um, and he is, he, he does have some, some, some weird thoughts, but, but I have been listening to, I do listen to Russell Brand's podcast. Um, and he's certainly not going to be, uh, you know, reading the daily wire. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but on the other hand, I do like some of his thoughts. Uh, and, and when I, I listen to him talk to other people, he definitely strikes me as someone who is earnest. Uh, and so I, and so I will listen to him and I, I do kind of like his idea that, you know, maybe there's a different understanding of, of, of our, uh, of a free market, uh, society in this next century. Um, I'm not smart enough to know what it looks like, but I do, you know, I think that there's a, you know, we can still have a, a new understanding of, of patriotism, which maybe is based on, uh, you know, the health and life of your community. Um, and that, that, you know, we could benefit from that. So there's probably some opportunities here as well. I know that's kind of nebulous, but I'm, I'm looking for, for goodness in what could also be badness going forward. Yeah, I don't think it's that nebulous part, man. I mean, when you look, there have been some hard lessons um, in this for environmentalists. I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, people are going to guard their own self-interest. And so that's why you can't take a reusable bag to the grocery store right now. So plastic bags are going out the door at the cyclic rate. Why? Because it makes sense for what's happening right now. So again, it's this 
extreme idea. Well, I, I, is that I right? You can't, I, you know, my wife just yeah. went to the grocery yesterday and she brought all of her reusable bags and they were fine. Uh, it's not happening around here. Is that right? One, yeah. You can't bring one in. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, uh, the shop right here in Hamilton is, uh, that was not a problem for her yesterday. Very interesting. Well, yeah. uh, well, again, that, again, that goes to, like you said, local initiatives that are, that are right. different. Um, that right. is, exactly. Which is the hallmark and beauty of the United States. But so in other words, at least in places, um, they've realized that some of these efforts um, are not a perfect fit for everybody. So the places that outlaw you drinking soda or um, outlaw, of course, it's not outlaw, but the tax that goes along with it, that you know makes it, puts the burden on your back to, to have a free will. Um, I, maybe we're learning some good lessons through this, that not everything is perfect. And, and what, you know, um, let me regather my thoughts here because what I'm trying to say is when things are easy, it's easy to come up with an idea about life that is easy. But when you face certain realities, then certain extraneous or ineffective ideas for a crisis are going to melt away. And I think you're witnessing that here locally and, uh, and hopefully uh, as it applies to the global economy. So I, I don't think what you're saying is nebulous at all that, um, what does the free market look like in the next century? You know, what has been the trend has been an injection of conscience into the into industry's mindset. And so they've shifted with um, their philosophy. And you can see it throughout this thing where they're caring for their employees. The yeah. employees aren't throwaway anymore. They're, they're being taken care of. And I've watched more than one CEO on the news at least go on the news and say he's taken personal hits to make sure that his employees are staying okay and a public conscience and an environmental conscience that's going, um, you know, that threads itself throughout the way we conduct business. If those things continue to happen, I think that's a good thing. But I also think it has to be smart. Like you can't cut your nose off to spite your face. You can't sacrifice more than, and, and like you said, the post-World War II days are drawing to a close where we basically had a monopoly on power between us and Russia or the Soviet Union. Then they eventually self-destructed, as you would expect, in that type of government. Well, somebody is inevitably going to fill that vacuum because the, the balance is going to ebb and flow. Well, um, I hope that we can take the goods out of this thing and bring them forward without and shed some of the extreme ideas on the fringe that we're beginning to take a, a hold in places because they, in my mind, have been demonstrated by this crisis to be counterproductive. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the big things that we both have, uh, have been vociferously opposed to is, uh, you know, intersectional feminist theory uh, and how that has, on the fringes of the left, you know, um, made, I think, it makes the fringe, and the fringes on both sides are, are nutty, but, you know, listening to that has always been is stuck in me because it's like, are you saying that a person, uh, their, their, uh, their inherent characteristics are who they are. That's absolutely wrong. And, and, uh, and you can see in this crisis that that goes away very quickly. Yeah, and there are right. some people trying to make, you know, trying to say that things are racist, uh, you know, that it's like, ah, sorry, we're not hearing that right now. Most people have shut that down and, and we're like, no, here, here's, here's what we're dealing with. And it's not, it has nothing to do with anybody because no matter your skin color, religion, uh, gender, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're, we're all equally at risk to this, this virus. And we're, we're trying to determine what that risk actually is. And that's, exactly. and, it, and so it's equal opportunity. And I think we're, we're seeing that, which is, which is good. Uh, on the other hand, uh, let me, so, uh, 
So two things have struck me about this, um, Chunks. I, I want to get your opinion on this because here's something that I see. This crisis, I think for some people, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to use the right word, so everybody out there listening, please, I don't, I'm not saying that people are happy about this crisis. But I think that for, for, for many people, depending on your, your personality, this crisis is, let's say, invigorating, invigorating, right? There are, there are people that are like, yes. This is an because you said it yourself. Human nature needs, we need, and that is just something that is hardwired into us. Something out there, something else, and other that is a threat to galvanize us to to community, right? And that is how we. That is world history, right there. Human history has been, uh, you know, who's the other, who who's with us, and those are my people. Uh, we're still like that. Um, and so this is a great, great thing for those people that really, uh, there are people out there that really, really um, uh, what's, um, favor, uh, that, that this, they thrive on the group interaction, you know, that, that comes from uh, fighting something together and coming together as a group, as a community, as a team, whatever it happens to be, we're very familiar with this in the Marine Corps, to, to, to try and fight that thing. This virus is a great, great um, catalyst for that. Why? Because the virus is not another people. It's not a country. It's not uh, a culture that we're, uh, you know, it's not ISIL. It's a virus. It, it might as well be, uh, the, you know, the, the beings from Alien, the movie, because it's, you can fight that and, and not feel like we're fighting something and being inhumane, right? So this virus has galvanized people to work together, to see that threat and to come together in a way that, you know, enhances community in terms of, and there is a, a, a certain portion of the population that really thrives on that whole idea. Um, I, I, I don't get the same, uh, you know, just for, for everybody out there. I, I think most people who've listened to me, uh, and you talk, know that I'm very individualistic and, and very libertarian. And for, for whatever reason, I, you know, group, group coming together always feels to me like, uh, like I'm always like, okay, what's going to happen here? <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable when there's so much, when, when, when large, large groups come together in a heterodox thinking or a, an orthodox thinking and then tell the heterodox thinkers that, you know, you, you are to be shunned. I get, I get nervous about that. I know I'm in the minority. But this is important for a lot of people, and I think it actually is something that's good in terms of American uh, patriotism, that we feel like uh, we're, we're fighting this together. And there has been a lot, I mean, there, they, we have passed bipartisan measures to try and deal with uh, this, and so that, that's probably a, a good thing. I, I, I probably spoke too long on that. Um, but it is, it is one of those things where I know that there are a lot of people out there that feel, I think, uh, at least a sense of pride in that we're fighting this thing. I agree with you 100%. And, and the fruits of that, like I said, have been so many people thanking their nurses and thanking their medics and standing on the roadside and cooking meals for truckers and know this general feeling that um, the sacrifice that they're making is worthy and um, an appreciation for the people that are taking the risk to give them the comforts that they have I think that's brilliant and I also like we said at the beginning have witnessed like on an interpersonal level 
um, things happening that I don't think would happen if the hustle and bustle of our everyday lives was continuing unimpeded. But I also think it's self-limiting, Bart, man, because I think there's a point beyond which people are just going to say, screw this, man, I'm going outside. Like I'm done being in the house. And um, I don't know, of course, it's, it's by the individual, you know, and then the interaction between <laughs> Uh, the community and the person that's taking it upon themselves to violate what the newly established norms, that's going to be interesting. You know, my, my own, well, I see people wearing masks, like driving their car. And now the CDC recommendation is to wear a mask. So what happens when you don't wear a mask? If you know you're not sick, then not wearing a mask is perfectly appropriate because the mask doesn't protect you. It's not to protect you from catching it. It's to protect you from spreading it. Yeah. And so if, if I know I'm not sick and I don't wear a mask, am I going to have to face a throng of people telling me I should have a mask on? Probably who are less informed than I am. Well, here's my answer to you. Piss off. Yeah. I don't want to wear a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. Well, there's, you know that, I mean? there's that American middle finger, right? That is, you know, hey, there's, there's a certain part of America's psyche that I think is actually going away a little bit, that at least it used to be, hey, screw you. Who are you? You can't tell me what to do. That, exactly. that was an American psyche that probably existed for uh, most of our, I don't think it exists as much anymore, which is, I think um, it's a shame. yeah, I, I do think that we lose a little bit when we don't have that. But I, I personally think, and, and, and this, you know, this is just me again. I do think that w what we're going to see, especially what we're seeing right now with the, with the initiatives uh, that the, uh, this administration has, uh, uh, has helped to, to, to garner, you know, through, through the, uh, uh, through Congress. I mean, I think those, you know what we talked about that Milton Friedman quote ideas that were lying around mm -hmm. something like UBI universal basic income. Uh, how about mandatory paid sick leave, right? Something, th those things that uh, were ideas that were lying around politically infeasible, they could become very well politically reasonable. Um, so I think we might actually see chunks a, uh, a, a furthering of, a, of the idea that, that, that bigger government is better. Um, and with all of the positives and negatives that come with that. Well, you're, well, uh, and you know what, that of all the things we talked about in this podcast today that are inevitable, that might be the one that is the most inevitable because as I said, you can't really measure victory. In fact, but it's, but it's even more than that. You can claim victory regardless of the outcome here. Yes. Because you're not going to know about the unknowns yeah, ever. That is problematic. No I, yep. And this thing is already so politicized and so polarized that can you imagine, let's just say the July prognostication comes to be that we can resume normal living in July. Imagine the conversations that are going to happen in July about what we did and how it worked and your sacrifice was so worthy. But, and this is why I say there are lawsuits pending and I'm, I'm really hoping that more than anything. That, that is an interesting thing. When you, when you said that earlier chunks, I, I was like, wow, I hadn't considered that, but you're right. There probably will be lawsuits based on the, the losses and hardships that some people are, that many people are experiencing. I hope so, Bartman, because how else are you going to codify the limits of power federal state and local there's a mayor somewhere in the in the country that 
uh, I wanted to, I'm going to blow it. So I won't even say it, but down to the local level are imposing limits on your life. And they've clearly, the mayor has no standing. A mayor of a town has no standing to um, compromise your constitutional rights, but it's happening and people are eating it. So like you said, uh, yeah, what, what does the future look like in this regard? I don't know. But if, if the idea of rugged individualism uh, and self-determination is withering in our day, this is not going to help that. This is going to further that. Yeah, so I, I believe I think that that's a crying damn shame. I do too, and maybe we're just old men because of that. Uh, <laughs> but I do, I do believe that that is inevitable. Uh, it probably was inevitable from about you know the time that our our ubiquitous um, use of the uh, uh, of the internet and interconnected interconnectivity was you know came about. Um, but there, there, I do try to look for silver linings, and and I do think that there will be some silver linings in this. Um, uh, perhaps a, uh, a, a greater, uh, localization, uh, in terms of, uh, how we, uh, produce and consume goods, which I've always thought is a good idea. I do think globalization will wane a bit, at least in m many areas, um, which uh, you and I have talked about this. I, I believe that this is one of those, this is one of those phrases that everybody thinks is a, uh, some kind of Republican dog whistle, but I believe that culture matters. Uh, yeah, and I, and I, not only do I believe it matters, I, I love that it exists. I love that there are different cultures that have different understandings. It makes the world an interesting place. Uh, I am huge on the yin and yang of, of human existence. Uh, this is why I can't get on board with people who say we, you know, we have to prevent badness, uh, at all costs, uh, because we need badness. We're as humans, at least at, at this point in our evolution, you cannot, you cannot have um, joy without sadness. You cannot, the concepts are intertwined. You, you, you can say that about everything, tragedy and triumph, uh, peace and conflict. You cannot have peace unless there is such a thing as conflict. And those things that make the human existence so enjoyable, those the, the yin and yang of life's um, ups and downs are what make us human and, and what cause us to, to tell stories and laugh and cry. Uh, the bottom line is, and, and you know, it's a philosophical question that's been, you know, talked about since, uh, since the Greeks and probably before, you know, the, you can't have, you cannot have something unless there's nothing and you can't have nothing, nothing, the idea, the very idea of nothing cannot even exist unless there is something because if there isn't something there isn't nothing right they right. have to they have to be together um there, there's probably people out there going what but uh but yeah look it up i'm not i'm not the philosopher that can talk about it, but there there are there are brilliant brilliant philosophical thinkers we have to have both of those things and this is why i'm always railing against you know regulatory efforts to create some sort of uh, utopian world because i'm like hey we we need we need it all. We need the badness and we need the good. So um, trying to make it, you know, trying to make a, uh, a world in which nothing bad ever happens, will, will I think is a fool's errand. Uh, maybe it implodes on itself. I don't know how that looks and, and we're getting off the rails, but. 
Yeah. I, that, how did we even get on to that, Jones? I, I, I can't remember what we were saying. Uh, <laughs> but listen, we're not off the rails, Bartman, because, um, and I'm glad you said the word fool's errand. It's this idea of rugged individualism and, um, and facing the, the trials of the world with bravery, man. And, and so much of what we're doing in today, in my opinion, and look, here's my, here's my little bit of radical thought for the day. So when this whole thing started, I thought it was one of three things. I thought it was a, it was a planned, um, planned crisis in the words of Rahm Emanuel, don't let one go to waste um, to, to expand government overreach. Kind of discounted that, but it was in the back of my head because look, as crazy as it sounds, I don't care. It's, it has happened uh, time and time again throughout history where things were fabricated and things were said, and then your rights went away. And I'm on guard for that. The second thing I thought was maybe I think, I this think you're right to be. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not, you're a fool. Um, the second thing I thought was that it was, they knew that it was weaponized and that the outcome, um, was unknown and possibly dire because it was a weaponized virus that had gotten out somehow. And interestingly, um, there's a book that talks, I mean, when you read the two pages of the book that talk about in 2020, a Wuhan 400 virus is going to hit the world. It's, it's frightening and amazing all at the same time. So that one to me, um, or some variation of it still lives in my mind at some point, you know, to some point, because again, the empirical numbers every day and the idea of flattening the curve when we face so many other things where we don't give a crap about flattening the curve that are way worse right now does not jive. And then the third one I thought, and this is where we've, we've spent most of our time today and, and really where I kind of live in this thing is that they wanted to try a new tactic. They just wanted to try a new tactic to avoid a pandemic from impacting our country uh, in a deep way. And I thought, well, that's, that's probably where it is. So in other words, I'm giving them credit for their earnestness, right? But um, the reality is you can overplay that, man. You can overplay that. When you, when you literally stand up at a podium and say um, that the life of one person who might die from this is worth you sacrificing your liberty, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't either. I, do not, I don't agree with that. And if that makes me radical, then so fucking be it. I don't care. Um, the reality is you're, you're never going to live a risk-free life. And, and, and time and time again over the last, I mean, what have we been flying, Bart, man? 20-some 20, 20 years we've been in aviation. And the numbers have been exceedingly low. But what, maybe five or ten years ago, the one guy that was running the NTSB came out with his vision zero. Zero aviation accidents i mean people have been talking to spend, about to spend money on something like that is ludicrous ludicrous to let it come out of your mouth as a public official puts you in the category automatically of a charlatan because it's not possible how could that ever be and if and if we had endeavors where there was zero risk there would never be any victory and we wouldn't want to do it yeah so but look, the milk toast, man bun wearing, don't offend anybody type of person is is a is a standard today. I always used to say, you know, we've gone from in the span of thirty years, gone from 
John Wayne as our role model to David Schwimmer in Friends as the modern, you know, the, the per, of, of what the modern American male should look like. I don't think that's, that's a good an thing. interesting question, by the way. What 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 should the modern American male look like? Well, yeah, maybe it's a blame. I'm not to ask that because you know males males should not have a voice. Um, <laughs> I don't think we should whimper. <laughs> no, I, I definitely answer. agree with that. Uh, obviously, I'm being hyperbolic, but yeah, I mean that's that. It's a great point. Um, there, there are definitely separate. There are warring ideals. There always have been about what we should be going forward. I'm, I'm going to be interested. It'll be interesting to see. Heck yeah. Um, you mentioned, yeah. So let's, let me, you, you mentioned recovery and when we come out of this and, and, and let me, let me, let me read over a couple things. I, I actually wrote these down and uh, let me, I'm, I'm going to give our listeners the, so th- there's, there's three analyses that I got. Is that the right word? Analyses um, from, uh, from the conference board, which is an online, well, not just online, but it's a think tank. Um, uh and they, they came up with three possible reboot scenarios for this, uh, for this particular crisis as we come out of it and how it looks economically. Um, just to give them credit, Bart Van Ark, who's the executive vice president and chief economist of the conference board, uh, and Eric Lund, who is the senior economist. Um, uh, so the first one is the, uh, the May reboot scenario, which is uh, what they call a quick recovery. And I'll read this out to you. Uh, not just you, Jones, but our listeners as well. Uh, this scenario assumes that the number of new COVID-19 cases added daily will stop accelerating by mid-April. Uh, while the number of sick people may continue to increase into May or June, it might then be possible to allow a controlled reboot of the economy by the month of May. Uh, I'm just going to read through. Industries impacted, arts, entertainment, recreation, accommodations, uh, transportation and warehousing, retail trade, manufacturing. Uh, there's a few more. Uh, unemployment will rise to 8% by the third quarter, but gradually level off after that. And the economy will contract by 16.5% in the second quarter, which equals a decline in the level of GDP of about 4.5% compared to the first quarter. And the annual loss in GDP in 2020 will end at 1.6%. So that that is the quick reboot scenario. Um, uh, they, I will well, actually, let me let me read the the other one. So the summertime V shape, which is a deeper contraction, uh, with a bigger recovery. So we we dip down lower uh, with a with a more um, pronounced uh, climb back up. Uh, basically, assumes the peak of new COVID nineteen cases will be higher, uh, and will take more time to go down to acceptable levels than the May reboot scenario. Um, uh, as new cases continue to escalate beyond mid-April, social distancing and containment measures are likely to remain in place for longer. So there will be different, uh, many of the same uh, uh, retail trade, wholesale, the, the, many of the same uh, uh, sectors will be hit. Uh, but in this case, uh, the, the analysis, the economy will contract deeply by about 35% annualized during the second quarter. Um, and then that equals a drop in GDP of more than 10% by year end. So the, con- the economy will finish below where it started and GDP growth will slow to a decline of five and a half in 2020. These are obviously just projected numbers, um, but unemployment will end up going up much faster uh, and could level off to 10% by the end of the year. And then the, the, the extended contraction, which is their fall recovery scenario, uh, per the analysis in, in this one, this assumes a more effective and managed control of new COVID-19 cases, uh, which reflects current, current balancing act of confronting all leaders while extending social distancing and other containment measures 
likely reduces the pressure on the healthcare system and the potential, potential number of fatalities. It also means that the reboot of the economy will not begin until September. Uh, so in addition to previously mentioned sectors, they, it extends out to something like finance, uh, insurance, uh, business services, and the like. Uh, in this case, uh, the economy would contract by 6% uh, in 2020 over 2019. Uh, this would be the largest decline since 1946 when the economy dropped by almost 12% as a result of World War II demobilization and the sharp pullback in military production. So uh, they uh, basically uh, think that the, the May quick reboot is the least likely. Uh, and I think right now they believe that that uh, deep fee um, uh, is the most likely. Uh, but I, you know, I'm not sure that 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 September extended recovery wouldn't be more likely as this goes on either. Anyway, that was that was interesting to read those uh, because I am worried about the economy and the future, uh, and and in, in at least the immediate future, what we're going to see as we come out of this. Obviously, I'm concerned uh, because you know my uh, my wife who is finishing her uh, master's degree, uh, we were hoping to start uh, you know looking for uh, positions coming up this June, May, June uh, timeframe. And I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, probably will be the end of the year, which means that um, we'll be reliant on, you know, my, uh, my doable, but, but modest pension right now uh, and possibly uh, work at CAE. Um, so anyway, that uh, anything strike you about those that, uh, or that stood out? You know, Bartman, I think it's an exercise in guessing. Um, it definitely is that, and they say so in the article. But I think the overriding concept to me that I rely on, and, and again, um, every single day I count my blessings that my world has not changed that much. My financial situation has not changed at all. I'm still being paid. I have regular work, and the trade for me is I have to go you know, inject myself into people's tragedies that have COVID-19. And that to me is a fair trade because it's my job anyway. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do recognize the, the great amount of blessings that are bestowed upon me and my family because of that. Um, <clears throat> but I don't, I don't say what I'm about to say antiseptically. You could go back through uh, all of history from day one of the American economy till now and, and every dip has been followed by recovery. Um, it's not always easy, but we're going to recover from this. That is, um, so, so the immediate future is the greatest concern for people that are not working. Uh, how's that gonna play out? The deep V sounds the most reasonable to me, um, you know, given all projections, but I really didn't expect them to keep things shut down for all of April either. So I, it's just hard to put your finger on. Yeah. And, and anything that comes out that's that, you know, speaks to any kind of uh, real granularity on what three months from now looks like to me, it's just a shot in the dark. Somebody's best guess. Um, when are we completely through this? I think the virus has a vote in that because if, if the deep V happens and we're all kind of running around getting back to normal in July and the thing comes back, how we handle that, I don't know. You know, hopefully they'll build on this empirical data and make better decisions, more, better informed decisions. But that remains to be seen because on the undercurrent of this entire conversation has been the politicization of, of all the goings on. And I don't know how that factors in, especially if we're in the midst of a delicate recovery. Yeah. 
You know, uh, I think in the latest um, uh, task force briefing, uh, Dr. Fauci, um, who has actually been a, a very solid voice of uh, of reason and, and uh, seems to very much be taking his position, uh, you know, seriously and w- with, without regards to, you know, administrative's, uh, administration's, uh, you know, political fights. I, I've been, I've enjoyed listening to him. Uh, now, I w- I'm well aware that some of his opinions are, are countered by other so-called experts, so, uh, but I'm fine with that. But he, he even said in this last briefing, I think, he was like, hey, there's, you know, there's this poss- there really is a possibility, a strong possibility that, you know, this virus becomes seasonal, right? So we, it, it dips down in the warmer months, uh, and as we go back into fall, there's a resurgence of this virus. Um, and you just mentioned it. How does that, what does that look like if we're in the midst of a, uh, of a delicate, I think you said, recovery, uh, and all of a sudden this, this virus begins to rear its head again, do we crawl back into our holes? That will be an interesting thing to see, right? The yeah. bot, we said early on, right, that this, this, the virus doesn't, us, us quarantining, if you're out there listening and, and you're, you haven't kept up. The quarantine is not to get rid of, we're not getting rid of the virus doing this. That's not what we're doing. Uh, the virus <laughs> is there. It's, it's, it's out. Um, and it will be with us, which means that, uh, again, most experts feel that we, most all of us, uh, and I don't mean Americans, I mean the world, are, are, are going to be exposed and, and probably contract this virus at some point. Um, uh, you know, unless you're a, a, a tribe isolated in the Amazon, right? That's, that's, uh, you might be safe, but we're going to continue to see this virus and how we deal with it uh, as if it becomes seasonal is going to be interesting. Will we put a, an economic recovery on hold? That could probably be fatal uh, to, 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 to several uh, economies, right? Uh, unrecoverable maybe. I don't, again, I'm not an economist, so I would, I would love to, to have that talk with somebody, but um, and, and it, and it leads me to another question. And I think, did we talk about this in our, our, our conversation yesterday, um, prior to this brief, this, uh, this talk, I think we said, what if, what if we, we come out of this and, and we're, we're getting back to normal and there is a, a new novel virus that, that pops up somewhere. Are we going to be willing to do this again? Are we, or is everybody going to be like, holy crap, we, we, Another virus. We have to save people at all costs. Everybody back into the hole. Are are we? Are, is humanity going to do that? Is the world going to do that? Is this sort of a uh, one-time thing where it's like, okay, we? I think you mentioned it earlier, uh, just a moment ago. You know, maybe they were, maybe they were trying to see how they could deal with something like this, and so that's what we're doing. It's like an exercise in in what could be. What will? And again, it's not an exercise because the virus is real, um, but, but our, our dealing with it is, is different than, than anything we've encountered in modern times. You know, so if all of a sudden uh, in, in a year or two years down the road, and, and this is uh, something that we've gotten a handle on and it's, you know, um, it, it's in the rearview mirror at least, and all of a sudden something else pops up in the road in front of us, are, are we going to duck back in? Will we be willing to do that uh, as we are trying to put our economy back together? I don't well, listen. I, I think first of all, the, the big evil pharmaceutical companies are once again being relied upon to solve this problem, and I think that they will. I mean, HIV was a scourge, and now you don't hear about it very often because they basically gotten it under control. And I mean, from a from an ideological standpoint, they understand it, and they have uh, means to prevent infection, and they can deal with the virus when it does infect your body. 
So it's, when, when do we talk about this? Very rarely anymore. When it was in the news day and day and day and day and day in and out, right? So the big evil pharmaceutical companies are still continuing their diligent and very important work in spite of their vilification, which is utter nonsense in many ways. And look, I know that's big industry, so there's downfalls to it. But at Endgame, they create goodness for our culture and for the world. And that's what they're going to do on this. I have no doubt they're going to come up with a vaccination for it. Um, in but in regards to the second part of what you were talking about, Bartman, how does the future look if it comes back? Look, something is going to come back. Whether it's a novel virus or this thing becomes seasonable or seasonal, but the but this is why I highlight and I've talked about so much of the overreach today, and I really again I I'm praying for these lawsuits to happen to establish limits of power in these matters because are people gonna if in nine months from now this thing comes back around are people gonna do this again I don't think so I don't think to this extent. They're going to ask questions. They're going to demand answers as to why. At least I hope so. I hope that that the seed of rugged individualism and self-determination is still existent in every American, even if it has withered a bit, enough for them to say, wait a minute, why, wait, whoa, 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 let's look at these numbers. It wasn't even a bad flu season. And again, that's, that's yet to be determined. Maybe it will look just like a bad flu season, or maybe it'll be three times as bad as a bad flu season. But either way, hopefully we draw on the empirical experience from this time to figure out the limits of what we're going to do next time. And we don't just blindly wander into getting issued a ticket for driving my car after eight o'clock when I'm not risking anything to anybody. I hope that we do that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I again, I think we both are uh, at least of the um, persuasion that we are wanting to uh, at least question whether these uh, initiatives are are doing more harm than good. I, I, that is a fair question in my mind. That is, there is anyone who is asking that is is probably. Uh, should definitely be included in the conversation. There should be people saying, hey, is this really what we want to be doing? Um, in any case, we're, we're already on the path we're on, and that's, that's how we're going to deal with this. And, and it will be interesting to see, like you said, uh, if it's seasonal, do we go back into our holes, you know, Punxsutawney Phil style, or, or do we say, nope, not, not this time? Um, uh, how, how long can we all stay indoors right now? Um, I, I feel for people that, you know, again, I have 500 acres to roam on, if you're if you're in a a city somewhere in an apartment and you you're literally not able to come outside your door, um, there's, that, that's going to have huge effect on your psyche. Um, exactly. If you're already, uh, you know, people who already have mental health issues are probably really struggling. Uh, I, I mean, we we're just a that's a can of worms right there. Just just talking about that. But yeah. So well, Chunks, we've been going for almost two hours. Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground here and it's good. And really it's been helpful for me to talk with you about this as it always is when we talk, which is why we do this to, to kind of, I guess, start to codify some of the thoughts I've been having or at least categorize them and start to sort them into a, you know, a hand of cards that I'm looking at. Hey, what do I want to, what am I playing here? So it's been awesome to uh, to talk with you again, as as always. Um, any any is there any overarching thought that you think you haven't hit yet? 
Uh, no, no Bartman, we, we talked about a lot today and I, I got to ventilate my spleen on a lot of matters. I haven't had a, a chance to have a good deep conversation. And again, that's why I love coming to this medium because you're so well informed and you're so well read. Um, you can tease a lot of minutia out of these things that are important. That's important. They get overrun in the clamor. And so when you do that, I'm always appreciative, but no, I, I just, you know, here's what I think to close off from my perspective. I hope people stay safe. I hope they do the things that they feel that are appropriate. And I hope that they're informed when they make those decisions. And I hope they're cognizant of the fact that their liberty is always at stake. And, and Rahm Emanuel, I love it. He's the one that put it on paper and got it into the media. Never let a crisis, never, what did he say? Don't, never lose the opportunity to take advantage of a crisis. Yeah. So, um, and that's working against your liberty. So you should be on guard for that. Yep. Agreed. That's a great place to end it then, Chunks. Well, um, so here's what I think going forward. We should, uh, we should be doing this much more often. Uh, and, uh, you know, just you and I, and then obviously, uh, if we can get guests on, uh, we should be going for that. Maybe we can make up the ground of this weird sort of first, uh, quarter that, that has happened in 2020 where we took an extended break and, and, and try to catch up to, uh, to a better, uh, to get a lot more episodes. Uh, but, but now that, you know, being able to do this uh, from home uh, with the equipment I have now, I think we can, th this is going to be a lot easier. Well, I think it certainly opens the door for more opportunities. I don't want to lose the studio experience though. Um, so maybe we can plan one of them in at a, at an extended interval so we can go there and, and have that too. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, obviously uh, I, I love Ming and uh and they've been great. So yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll have some, uh, we'll plan to do more of these, you know, uh, just via, via zoom. And, uh, and then we'll have some, some studio stuff that we can get in there too. Uh, of course they're not, they're, they're actually not doing anything from studio right now. They're, they're all virtual. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but as we come out of this then yeah, we'll, we'll get back in, but well, all right, chunks. Great, great talking with you, man. Um, you too, appreciate man. all of your, uh, all of your thoughts as always, because it just gives me just a whole new perspective and how to, uh, to deal with all the stuff going through my mind. So right back at you, brother. Yep. All right, chunks. Well, appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, you stay safe as well, man out there. Uh, so appreciate what you're doing, uh, as, as do all of us. And, uh, yeah, um, we'll, uh, talk to you soon. Okay, brother. Take right, care. Bro. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us here again today in the Ready Room. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, I know I did, and I'm looking forward to bringing you more of the same in the near future with intriguing and inspirational guests from all walks of life. If you did like it and you want to join us again, please subscribe to the Ready Room and take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, your favorite podcast app, wherever it is you're going to get your podcasts. Uh, you can also find us online at readyroombrief.com. I've been your co-host, Richard Frederick, and on behalf of Chunks and myself, we really thank you for being here. We hope you enjoyed it, 
and we hope you'll join us next time in the Ready Room. <laughs>